You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Autumn. Season of mists, mellow fruitfulness... And, the government hopes, packed rush-hour trains, jammed commuter routes and rammed offices. But is it going to happen? This first week will give us a clear indication of what people are going to do and whether it's sustained and whether or not it even grows. You know, whether the push to the office in fact becomes a lure that you can't resist. The broad mass of us are double-jabbed, the masks are mainly off, the kids are in school. But the virus numbers are on the rise again. The crystal ball is cloudy. A lot of what we see over the next few months could be down to, to people's behaviour and whether we do end up shifting those habits that we've formed over the past year and a half. What do the next few months of the long pandemic have in store for us? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, back to work, back to school, finally back to normal... As pupils were beginning school in most parts of the UK, people have been returning to their offices in large numbers. One of those people was Sunday Times city editor Jill Trina, and she's been watching how big companies have been trying to entice their working-from-home employees back to the land of fluorescent lighting and swivelly chairs. BT, obviously a major employer, you know, 100,000 people, put out a sort of blog to its staff, and in fact, I think to the wider world, really, trying to explain that while COVID had allowed people to work from home quite effectively, they thought it was really important that people also came into the office. The importance of sort of shared spaces, collaboration, and just how important it was for maybe new joiners and younger people to sort of get a feel for the culture of organisations. What was the tone of that? Was it you should come back in? Or was it to say, we'd quite like you to come back in if you want to, because there's lots of good things about being in? I haven't seen that many staff memos or heard about people being told, you must arrive back in the office right now. I think a lot of these messages, particularly from companies like BT, are much more kind of persuasive, I would say, trying to convince you that offices are a good place to spend some time. And acknowledging, in fact, that the future of office life and working life is quite difficult to know how it's going to work out. We can talk in a moment about why it might be right to take that tone. But 
Do you think that companies are really quite keen to get some more of their staff in for more time? This is such a difficult question to answer entirely and to answer thoroughly, I'll be honest. I would say, and a lot of this I'm about to say is feels anecdotal. Some of it we know, some of it we don't, if you see what I mean. But the start of September, the kind of beginning of the school year, I think there is a bit of a back-to-school way to city and office life. I want people to, to go back to work as, as, as carefully as possible. I think we need, it's very important. That if you think of a year ago when... Boris Johnson was telling people it was good to go back to offices. And then, of course, we had another lockdown or more restrictions came in place. Early closing for pubs, bars, expanding the use of face coverings, new fines for those that fail to comply. Once again, asking office workers to work from home if they can. This time round, there is much more of a feel of companies drawing up policies about what the future of work might look like and about trying to get their offices used again, which, as you know, have really lain empty in quite a large part of London. I can speak about more easily, really, for the past 18 months. But I suppose what I'm, I'm wondering is whether companies, when they look at what they want to happen, are sitting, whether CEOs and other people are sitting around thinking, we can't really do our job as well unless they come back in. I think it depends which bosses you speak to. So... Goldman Sachs's boss, David Solomon, has become the kind of poster boy, if I'm allowed to call him that, for saying it's time to come back to the office. And he has talked about how homeworking is an aberration. I think for other bosses, they are trying to find a middle ground. They are seeing that staff did work during the pandemic. They worked from home during the pandemic and that some people have enjoyed not commuting, are using that time in a different way. So I think bosses are trying to find a way to steer through the fact that some of their staff really are not at all keen to get back to offices, and there are others who are. I spoke to Jill last week on what was England's big back-to-school day. Scotland has been back for weeks, and I wondered what she'd seen while crossing the Thames from the Times office to meet contacts in the city. Walking over London Bridge, it felt like there were more people walking over London Bridge, but I'm not sure that my sort of straw poll of that particular moment, walking over <laughs> London Bridge, is really that scientific. I mean, look, we know that data published by Transport for London was showing that tube usage was back up. Now, when you talk about tube usage, which is obviously a measure of people's office use in London, being up, you're not presumably talking about it being up on pre-pandemic levels. You're simply talking about it being up on where it, where it was. Indeed, where it has been. And indeed, I think it's going to be a while, isn't it, before people are back. Anybody who's used any tube lines in London will know it, it could be a fair old while before people are quite jam-packed in as they were previously. But it is indeed true that the tube has had its busiest morning in the past 18 months, and that was on Monday. But I think it's important to remember that was only 45% of pre-pandemic levels. Okay. Do you have any sense from the companies you speak to or from what you observe that everybody is thinking of going back full time or that there's a lot of talk about this thing which people call a new flexible working week? The buzzword is hybrid. Almost every boss you speak to and almost every individual you speak to is talking about this idea that you spend a couple of days in the office and a couple of days at home. And I think it's important to think about that hybrid is about the difference between home and office working or perhaps remote working. You hear much less flexibility, at least that I do, in terms of hours you work. 
a little while ago, Jonathan Haskell, who's a member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, gave an interview to The Times. And he was making the point that people worked longer hours because the average commute time, he said, was 59 minutes, which people were using as working time as well. So maybe it's an employer's interest not to have their employees commuting if they're in fact using commuting time to work. And it also has allowed people classically, hasn't it, to rethink some of the work-life balance. I mean, I know people who now take their kids to school or pick them up from school who just couldn't do it before. An economist at Stanford University, Nick Bloom, who has done quite a bit of work on this idea of how people value working from home compared with working in an office and commuting. He made the point to me a while ago now that that home working, to your point, can change entirely the way you want to live. And you could even make a decision to move out of densely populated, costly cities and towns and move somewhere cheaper. And this is largely in America, but was arguing that 10% of Americans could regard it as the equivalent of a 30% pay rise. And the average across the people he questioned regarded working from home as a 10% pay rise. But that sort of speaks to your point, I think, that it, if you are working from home, it can allow you to do things you couldn't do before that perhaps it's difficult to value. One thing that strikes me about our conversation, Jill, is that one might have expected companies or institutions to have done a little bit more research on what it was that people would do in a circumstance like this. All employers, from what I can make out, have done some sort of survey of their staff about what it is their staff want. LinkedIn, the social networking site, along with the pollster census-wide, did a survey in June asking people about where they wanted to work. So in June, they found out that 49% of UK employees wanted a mix of home and office working, and just 12% wanted to be in the office in full time. Then they did the survey again in July after so-called Freedom Day, you know, July the 19th in England. And they found that the proportion of people who wanted hybrid work had actually fallen to 31%. And the number of preferring full-time office work was up to 37%. Now, either this tells us people had a dramatic change between those two periods, which is possible. Maybe people changed their minds as to to their mood (laughs) on their particular day. Maybe if you've had a really bad day working at home and... I don't know, the cat's got on your nerves or something. You think, oh, I want to go back to the office. I get the feeling that people themselves are trying to work out what they want and that it is hard for employers to know exactly what their employees want. Perhaps I'm sitting on the fence too much. If staff don't want to return, how might companies who want them to, the more activist ones, react? I mean, might they do things like say, well, in that case, we'll pay you a bit less if that's how you want to work? Well, some of the tech companies in the States have been talking about this taking this moment to say, you know, if your commute is less, they're going to pay you less. It's a difficult one to know what will happen in Britain. I mean, it's certainly the case that people are talking about the old London waiting that you used to get. Will that survive if people aren't going to be commuting into central London and required to? And again, it speaks to that point that for some people, they might see working from home as an advantage that they're prepared to be paid less. Also, One of the things that we're looking at is the possibility that in a few weeks' time after the schools have gone back and all the venues are open and so on, that we will see a significant spike in infections. And anecdotally, you already seem to see some of that. Are businesses planning for that kind of situation or worried about it? 
there's plenty of speculation just beginning, isn't there, about what might happen. And it can be certainly true that employers will not be wanting to be shutting down offices and sending employees home again if they've just lured them back. But I think if you have an employer who's encouraged your employees back, you are now going to have everything crossed, I suspect, to make sure that this spike wave or whatever we're calling it doesn't lead to a situation where the government is having to issue fresh guidance about staying at home. The coming weeks, months will determine, I think, whether or not there's a shift back to more office working or whether this hybrid lifestyle becomes the norm. Coming up, will late autumn become a season of booster shots? But first... Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerins, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're like me, then over the last 18 months, you've turned into a part-time amateur data scientist, poring over infection numbers in different countries, squinting at tables of vaccination rates in potential holiday destinations. Some people, though, do data for a job. Last Tuesday, I caught up with one of our very own stats experts. I'm Tom Calver, senior data journalist for The Times and The Sunday Times. So it's my job to sort of interpret data and whether that's from a range of topics on things like COVID to politics and trying to explain the different trends and and what it all means. Tom, where are we now with the COVID numbers? We still have daily updates, but a lot of us have just completely lost track of the trends. Sure. So let's start with COVID cases. So these are, of course, the number of people testing positive for the virus. It's the seven-day average. 
suggests about 38,000 people a day are testing positive through COVID. For context, four months ago, and also actually this time last year, we were seeing about 2,000 a day. Now, the January peak, when things got really bad at the start of the year, that was on average about 60,000 cases a day. And cases now are ticking up again at about 12% a week. Now, in plain English, uh, that basically means they take about six weeks to double. There's lots of numbers coming up, so to help things along, I'll jump in from time to time with the headlines. And the first thing to know is infections are fairly high and growing steadily. So if we were just looking at case numbers alone, alarm bells should be ringing. We are more than halfway towards that January peak. But the big reason we're no longer just focusing so heavily on cases is, of course, because of vaccines. Now, we've vaccinated about 90% of adults or 71% of the total population, if you include children. Now, this, plus everyone who's caught COVID already, provides a substantial wall of immunity. And what that basically means is that the same number of cases now provides much less pressure on the NHS compared to what would have happened with that number of cases last year. So at the very start of the pandemic, you might get one hospital admission for every five or 10 cases. Now, though, you get one admission for every 30 or 50 cases. So far fewer people are going to hospital to be treated for COVID now than at the start of the pandemic. But how does that relate to the current infection numbers? The latest stats show about a thousand people a day are being admitted to hospital with COVID. And that's also rising slowly at about 7% a week. And it means that at the moment across the UK, about 7,600 people are in hospital with the virus. Now, of course, again, crucially, we're a long way off the January peak when there are about 38,000 patients in hospital across the UK, but still very much higher than both this time last year and a few months ago. So we're currently in the middle of a much smaller but much more gradual wave of hospitalisation. And what of that terminal COVID stat, the number of daily deaths? We're seeing about 100, 110 deaths every day, and that's been relatively flat for the past few weeks. And that's, of course, is the people who've died 28 days after taking a positive COVID test. Again, while it's much, much lower than what we saw in January when something like 1,200 people a day were dying of the virus, it's worth remembering that this time last year, there was something like nine deaths being recorded every day. So 100 a day is not insignificant at all. Okay, going back to your point about immunity, are you saying that uh, the enhanced immunity that we have is also the reason why cases haven't hit that January peak this summer? Vaccines are obviously brilliant. They uh, stop a lot of people from getting put into hospital because of that. But the other way they're very good is that they do have a bit of protection against infection themselves. So if I have the virus uh, and I'm in a room full of vaccinated people, I'm much less likely to pass it on. It's obviously not impossible. Now, obviously, we, we hear lots of stories of, of people who've been double jabbed catching the virus and passing it on. But it does make a big difference in terms of those overall case numbers. Now, you've talked about hospitalisation and we've talked about deaths. Can I take it that as far as we can tell, we're not getting significant pressures on ICUs at the moment? It's nothing like the first wave, certainly not like the second. Just 12 COVID patients today on this intensive care ward at the Royal London Hospital. ICU admissions are relatively stable at the moment. If we look at the number of patients in mechanical ventilator beds, there are roughly about 1,000 in those across the UK at the moment. Back in January, it was about 4,000. So there's much more manageable pressures 
on ICUs at the moment. But of course, you know, COVID is only one part of the story when it comes to healthcare at the moment. There are also sort of two other main pressures on the NHS. The main one is all the care that was missed during the first three lockdowns. Of course, we've got a waiting list of about five and a half million patients in the NHS, and that has grown throughout the past 18 months. The other key thing as well is that we're starting to see rises in sort of non-COVID illnesses. All of these things combine to put a lot more pressure on the NHS than what we're used to in a typical September. One observation, though, we've had no government briefing, as far as I recall, since the July 19th, when the last stage of the restrictions were lifted. Today, we've reached the fourth step on our roadmap. As far as you can tell, is the conscious suggestion from the government this is more or less over? There comes a point after so many have been vaccinated when further restrictions no longer prevent hospitalizations and deaths, but simply delay the inevitable. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, if not now, when? I think it's safe to say that this month cases will probably rise. And, and I think the, the government probably doesn't want us to focus too heavily on those numbers, especially now that we've got vaccines. And the real barometer of how worried we should be is to focus on those hospital and, and death levels. But even those, there are many people who don't want us to publish daily death figures anymore. And, you know, obviously COVID was a, a massive killer last year. But now there are several other conditions, cancers, for example, that are much more deadly than COVID at the moment. Let's cast forward a little bit because schools have just returned. There's a lot of emphasis on people going back to work. And so what I think almost everybody is wondering is, will we see a big increase in numbers? And then secondary, will those numbers feed through in some way, into hospitalizations and deaths? So I think, first of all, the, the big worry was, has always been schools. And there's a few things going on here, and it kind of explains why we should take case data with a pinch of salt. So firstly, cases will start rising. They, they are indeed rising sort of quicker over the past few days since schools started going back. But of course, now we've got thousands more lateral flow tests being done every day that are into the mix that weren't being done over the summer holidays. Now, of course, that's going to lead to a big increase in the number of cases. It's really important to not get too carried away by the, the quite drastic rises we're going to see. The key things to look for are the percent of tests that are coming back positive. So if that's going up quickly, then we can be fairly sure that genuinely across the whole community, cases are going up. But it's not just schools. You know, We've seen that one-off events, for example, like festivals, can lead to spikes in COVID, particularly among the young people. <laughs> Three with the latest BBC News for Cornwall, I'm Mel Osborne. Cornwall's health leaders have confirmed what many people suspected. The Boardmasters Music Festival has led to a spike in COVID-19 So cases. the Boardmasters Festival in Newquay back at the start of August, that was associated with about 5,000 cases. Now, jokes aside, Reading Festival, I love you guys so much. This is what I wanted it to be. I just wanted us to have a party. I wanted us to smile. There are some signs that the Reading Festival led to a, a smaller but you know, still significant spike in cases. The question, I suppose, is whether we're going to see a big change in behaviour over the next few months. A good way of kind of quantifying that is every week researchers from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine 
ask a selection of people across the country how many people they had close contact with in a single day. So before the pandemic, it's supposed that we met about 10 to 11 people each day. Now that fell to about two during the first lockdown. But even now, with everything up open again, it's still about four. So we're still much more cautious, this data would suggest, Mm. than we used to be. And things that could make us meet more people, like going back to the office, for example, that could give the virus more chance to spread. Because it sort of suggests that a lot of what we see over the next few months could be down to to people's behaviour and whether we do end up shifting those habits that we formed over the past year and a half. Well, that's really interesting because it means it's quite hard to know whether increases in numbers or not such great increases in numbers are down to our behaviour or down to our immunity. I mean, from what you're saying, it's actually both. Yes, exactly. There's another few things that could lead to cases rising, of course. You know, you've mentioned immunity, and I think it's it's really important to note that while vaccines do offer very strong protection, there is some sign that that immunity may be waning, particularly among those people that were vaccinated first. If you look at what's happening in Israel, for example, you know, Israel, of course, surged ahead with vaccination, jabbed nearly all adults with the Pfizer vaccine before winter was over. And cases and admissions initially plummeted right down to very low levels until about six weeks ago. It thought it had vaccinated its way out of the pandemic, but now Israel is in the midst of its fourth wave, with the number of daily new infections steadily rising to more than 6,000 now, a six months high. When all of a sudden patients, many of them double vaccinated, started getting ill again. This has led to many experts to suggest that immunity does wane after a certain period among vaccines. So even if everyone carried on behaving exactly the same as they are going forward from now on, we may still start to see cases uh, and potentially admissions rise over the next few weeks and months. Now, the obvious answer that people have put up to that is that we should begin a program of booster shots. And I think in Israel, they're doing this. They are. And it's actually working quite well, remarkably. So they started this program, I think it was at the start of August. And four or five weeks on, you can already see the effects in the data, which is quite satisfying. Uh, the number of patients in hospital with COVID in Israel has started to fall again. It looks as though booster jabs are very effective. And I think that is a, a massive piece of good news. One thing that we do know, of course, as well, is that people's immune systems do get worse as they get older. So a lot of countries prioritised vaccinating the very vulnerable and the the old initially. Now, those people who were first vaccinated in sort of December and January time, now, you would almost expect that immunity to be lower. So I think that a programme of protecting the very vulnerable and ensuring their immunity is sort of topped up over time. I think that's that's very effective. But isn't the logic of what you're saying is that actually significant numbers of people should be looking for booster shots over the course of the next six months? I mean, I, I had my first AstraZeneca in February. And as you talk, I'm thinking to myself, hmm, come October, November, maybe I should be looking for my booster. So interestingly, you mentioned AstraZeneca. Obviously, Israel has used just the Pfizer jab, and they've also used a sort of three-week interval between the doses. Now, what we did, we've obviously used the Pfizer quite a lot, but we've also used the AstraZeneca jab, which it looks like seems to hold immunity a bit better than the Pfizer vaccine. Hooray! Great news for everyone who, who got the uh, much maligned Oxford vaccine. What this all means is that over the next few months, 
it is quite likely that people in certainly over sort of 60 would look to be getting a third dose over here as well. Now, another question about vaccination, which is that a wide observation about Europe in general, and I don't know how it applies to the UK, but you will, is that there's actually a worrying plateau that we've hit with the total number of adults vaccinated. It's a number of factors, really. We've now reached a certain point in the vaccination programme where we've almost run out of people to vaccinate. I think we sort of reached this quite early on in Britain, but I think other countries are starting to plateau as well. And it effectively just means that we've done about 90% of all adults. We most slowly you know, extend that downwards into teenagers. Obviously, there's been a lot of pushback, but other countries in particular are doing 12 to 15-year-olds, for example, Israel, the US, France and Germany and so on. One other thing, when vaccination started, the vaccine was very much seen as this kind of silver bullet that could completely stop COVID, get us out of this mess. And people were very excited about getting their freedoms back. And the vaccine was kind of portrayed as that. But I think to young people now who it's only just become available to them, there are still cases where people who are double jabbed can get ill. And I think people see that and without properly understanding the full kind of data behind what's going on, perhaps see these cases and think that actually, if people are still getting ill after getting jabbed, then what's the point of getting jabbed? And also, if society is opened up and everything's going on as normal, it takes some of the urgency out. Yes, but of course, what we've got to remember is the only reason that society can open up in the way that it has is because of vaccinations. From your lips to God's ear. Now, let's look at a, another aspect of this, which which is important, which is that as a consequence of the lockdown and the measures that we've taken against COVID over the last year and a half, we have temporarily suppressed a whole number of other diseases which may now flare up. Can you take us through that one? The theory goes that obviously COVID is a very infectious disease. What that means is the measures that we needed to control outbreaks of COVID are also incredibly effective against other diseases that pass in similar ways to COVID. So the obvious one is flu, classic winter seasonal influenza. Now, it's less infectious than COVID. And as a result, because of uh, the timing of our lockdowns and other kind of social distancing measures, the flu outbreak was basically completely suppressed. I think in Britain, cases of flu were down about 95% or something like that. The way immunity from things like flu work is it's sort of like a patchwork, a mosaic, if you like. So you kind of pick up bits of immunity from different strains that are going around. And what flu jabs do is try and sort of take a bit of all the different diseases that have been in circulation in the, in the previous winter and try to build a vaccine that protects against that. That sort of patchwork of immunity that people have might have a few gaps in it this year. But of course, it's, it's not just flu. Other respiratory infections like RSV, which is a, a virus that basically affects young children, that now appears to be surging much earlier in Britain than it normally does. It normally peaks around December, January time. But already hospitals are now treating children, some of them in intensive care, for this disease. And there were next to no cases this time last year. There's some suggestion that it's because of all the slightly lower levels of immunity among lockdown babies that might have led to this. What we're seeing is all of those diseases that we've suppressed for a year could be coming back either earlier or uh, hopefully not, but potentially uh, in quite severe outbreaks later on in the year. Let's make a conjecture, which maybe you'll be reluctant to, but which people are thinking about. Are there circumstances that you can imagine 
in which in this coming few months we might have to put back restrictions and in which scientists say on SAGE will say to the government, we really need to do something about this. I think a full lockdown is probably out of the question again. I don't think we would ever go back to the kind of lockdowns that we witnessed in January or in November or even last April. There are some scientists who think that perhaps we might revert back a stage of the reopening, the roadmap, I should say, maybe reintroducing things like wearing masks inside and keeping some social distance measures and maybe being a bit more cautious in hospitality venues. But I think probably that realistically, that's as far as things would go. One thing that I thought was was quite interesting, so there was some polling by the, the pollster JL Partners a few weeks ago that basically asked people uh, under a series of different scenarios, would you impose further restrictions? And for as long as hospitalizations remained low and hospitals weren't under severe pressure, just 20% of people would want COVID restrictions to be tightened. But if there was national sustained pressure um, across all hospitals and and death levels were up significantly, then overall, many more people, about 60% or more of the population would then support imposing more restrictions. That tells us, I suppose, that that the people are led by the data as much as the the politicians claim to be. However, I think crucially, I I don't think we'll get to those levels of hospitalisation that would require further restrictions to be imposed. I hope I'm right anyway. (laughs) You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Times and Sunday Times senior data journalist Tom Calver, and Sunday Times City Editor Jill Trina. You can read more of Tom and Jill's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Edward Drummond and Marilyn Rust. The executive producer today was James Shield. And sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes@thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. 
the secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.